Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. No president should be able to sustain boots on the ground without congressional approval and without a clear explanation of what the mission is and what the end game is. This isn't really about the economic policy. This is about the coronavirus. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We must use every tool possible to defeat this assault on women's reproductive rights. This is a steady growth that we're seeing here in our economy, you know, over the last three months. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Live from Washington, where another piece falls into place on Capitol Hill, this time the debt ceiling. The Democratic leadership gets on the same page with a plan now to suspend the debt limit through December 22 as part of a government funding bill that they're about to vote on the coming days here would avert a shutdown next month. We'll get the latest from Bloomberg congressional reporter Eric Wasson, and we'll discuss it with Maya McGinnis, president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. And as President Biden heads to the U.N. in New York, we will look ahead to his speech to the General Assembly tomorrow with Brett Bruin, president of the Global Situation Room, former director of global engagement in the Obama White House, and analysis, of course, from the panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us for the full hour. For what it's worth, the spillover from the whole Evergrande story made its way to the White House today. Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked if the White House was concerned that this issue could widen and if the PRC has this under control. Here's what she said. Let me first note that this is a company based uh, in China whose activities are overwhelmingly centered in China. Uh, that being said, uh, we always are monitoring global markets, obviously from the, the Department of Treasury primarily, including the assessment of any risk to the U.S. economy, and stand prepared to respond appropriately if needed. How about that? A prepared response. It's not often we hear a response from the podium to what's happening on Wall Street, but they were ready today. It was that bad. And that was just the beginning of the briefing. So welcome to the fastest hour in politics. We have 10 days, 10 days until the government runs out of money. And while no one is predicting a shutdown this time, it does feel a bit different, doesn't it? There are so many questions hanging over this process. And today we actually got an answer to one of them. As lawmakers returned to town, the House Rules Committee began drawing up the roadmap for a government spending bill, the continuing resolution, as we call it in Wonkville here that will fund operations through December of this year. And just like that, Speaker Pelosi, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer issuing a joint statement, say they will include a suspension of the debt ceiling through December of 22, which they say would provide an amount of time commensurate with the debt incurred from last winter's emergency COVID relief legislation that, as they point out, was authored by Republican senators and signed into law by the previous president. President Biden just tweeted support for the plan, and we're joined right now by Bloomberg congressional reporter Eric Watson, who's been covering every stage of this. Eric, thank you for being here. I know you were up early because I saw you on TV. Will this creative approach solve the problem, or do Republicans say no to including the debt limit or the suspension? 
Joe, Republicans are still saying no. Mitch McConnell made clear even after this new combined bill was released that Republicans will be voting no on that. I'm standing out uh, here outside a Republican leadership meeting, and Rick Scott just told me that, yes, the caucus voted uh, as a group in April. They would not be supporting a debt ceiling increase without structural cuts to the U.S. spending profile. So, yeah, I don't think this this solves anything. And, and, you know, there is maybe even a slight uh, chance of a government shutdown if they really bobble this. We're we're 10 days out, which is enough time for them to probably vote this down and pivot to something else. Uh, But uh, as of right now, we're looking at 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 a pretty big uh, showdown between the two parties over the debt ceiling here. So what was the real aim here, Eric? Was it to generate that response from Republicans to dare them to say no to funding the government and storm relief and Afghan refugee resettlement, everything else in that bill? Well, you know, I think uh, some people in the White House seem to think the Republicans are going to cave. Uh, I don't think that's likely, uh, but they're going to put that to the test. And, uh, you know, then there'll be a track record. The midterms, uh, 2022 midterms are looking rough for Democrats. They're looking for political issues. Perhaps yeah. that plays a role here. Uh, they can say the Republicans voted to default. Uh, but in any case, it looks like that's where we're headed. The House is probably going to pass that early this week, probably go to the Senate, and then uh, we'll go from there. So this this passes the House, dies in the Senate. That's how you see it happening? Uh, yeah, and then I think we'll, we'll see the CR come up. I also have reporting. Uh, my sources are telling me that uh, there are right now, as of this moment, there are some problems between uh, Republicans and Democrats on the content of that stopgap bill. There's a- uh, Afghan refugee aid in there, yeah. and Republicans want stronger uh, money in there for vetting uh, these, these refugees uh, on the fear that there's some, maybe some terrorists, and there's a fight going on over that. But presuming they resolve that, uh, they could probably pass this uh, stopgap uh, bill on a bipartisan way uh, once the debt ceiling stripped out. Once it's stripped out, and then that means a standalone vote, Eric? Uh, they could do that, or, you know, the Democrats do have the ability, using the budget reconciliation process, which is a totally separate yep. uh, process here, to pass it on their own, but so far they've declined to do so. Yeah, Nancy Pelosi has said they would not do that. Fascinating. Eric, real-time reporting from the halls of Congress. We really do appreciate it. Eric Wasson's been doing an amazing job, and if you're on the terminal, look for his byline. While we're talking deadlines, by the way, September 27th is one week away. The date when Speaker Pelosi promised moderates a vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Do you remember it? We talk about all of this now with Maya McGinnis, who I'm glad to have a chance to speak with on this day of all, the president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Welcome back, Maya. Are we officially playing politics uh, with the good faith and credit of the United States Treasury? We really are. It's so discouraging to watch words like uh, hostage taking or plain chicken when it comes to the debt ceiling being thrown around, and they are. Um, And honestly, I don't quite see how this plays out. I don't think we're going to default. But the amount of posturing and politicking around something that's a no-brainer because it has to get done and there's shared responsibility for it, it's just a reminder why politics these days to so many of us feels like it's a bunch of kindergartners running the country. (laughs) This is serious stuff, and this is not serious behavior. Well, it's getting close. I mean, I don't know how many op-eds Janet Yellen can write between now and the next 10 days here. How many papers are left? That's right. Well, right. But the language in this statement from the leadership was really something, as I was just reading it with Eric here. You know, we've been we've been hearing about the Trump credit card uh, from Nancy Pelosi, and they have made the point that not everyone understands raising the debt ceiling is to pay for money already spent. And so they write, we believe that suspending the limit through December of 2022 would provide an amount of time commensurate with the debt incurred as a result of passing last winter's 
bipartisan emergency COVID relief legislation. There's no mention of the 2017 tax cuts in here, though. And isn't that what we were really paying for, Maya? So we're paying for a lot of things. There's a lot of past policies that have put on the books the structural deficits that we now face. Mm -hmm. There were the Trump tax cuts, uh, $2 trillion. Those were followed by another $2 trillion plus in bipartisan spending increases. There are structural imbalances in our biggest programs, Social Security and Medicare, and the aging of the population, health care costs. Those are also contributing to the ongoing deficits. Of course, the COVID borrowing, most of which was bipartisan, and then yes. the last bill, which was Democratic only. So there is lots of borrowing from the past. The need to increase the debt ceiling reflects some Republican-only policies, some bipartisan and some Democratic-owned policies. But I don't think it's right to say this is, you know, just one party's or the other's. It's clearly not. That said, I could certainly understand why Republicans would say, if they were acting adult about this, we should lift the debt ceiling. We are partially responsible for the debt. But we want to do so in a way that also prohibits new borrowing, Mm -hmm. because there's no reason to be borrowing now. And I could imagine a fair deal which said, we're going to lift the debt ceiling to accommodate what we've done before, but we're not going to allow additional legislation to pass that borrows more. Now, would Democrats agree? Probably not. But that would be a sensible kind of trade. Right. And it would be rational and not necessarily play the best uh, game of politics here. Right, Maya? I mean, this has been a pretty steady message from Mitch McConnell from the very beginning. You guys own the government. You fix it. Yeah. um, And and again, the debt ceiling is particularly complicated because it's a policy we're doing today that's past legislation. Um, And that doesn't the timing of it doesn't make sense. Frankly, what we should do is we should fix the debt ceiling so that at the same time you're casting a vote to approve policies that would require borrowing, there's a separate vote where you also have to vote to increase the debt ceiling. Mm -hmm. So in 2017, on the Trump tax cuts, all the Republicans who voted for that would have also had to vote to increase the debt ceiling. Same when they all passed COVID legislation. Uh, The same would go for if any of these future infrastructure bills passed, and they too will require borrowing, then you'd lift the debt ceiling then. But to say, I approve the legislation now, and I don't approve uh, that will allow us to pay the bills later shows how these things are separated in a way that no longer makes sense. Maya McGinnis, let's uh, look out to the 27th of September. That's even closer. That's, I believe, Monday. That's the day moderates were promised that there would be a vote on bipartisan infrastructure. If they don't get it, many say they will not vote to pass the reconciliation plan. And of course, progressives say they won't pass reconciliation unless they know that's a sure thing. Uh, before they they vote for bipartisan infrastructure. Are you envisioning a world on this Monday, the 20th of September, where the whole thing falls apart? I see so many possible scenarios, and I guess it's not surprising when we're talking about massively large legislation, Mm -hmm. huge levels of polarization in the country, and, you know, huge differences within the Democratic Party, and huge amounts of debt, and an unwillingness to raise taxes. So there are a lot of different pieces going on. And suddenly, every member of Congress is realizing, hey, I have a lot of leverage. I think I might go ahead and use it. So it's not just that we hear about Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema. There's just about every member has a vote that really makes a difference. In the House, too, there's only a couple votes they can afford to lose. And so you're hearing a lot of requests on the things that matter most to members, Um, everything from the SALT cap to the dates that we vote for for the bipartisan 
infrastructure bill. And I, I feel like I have more questions than answers for you today, but <laughs> I don't know what leadership is going to do to try to maintain control over the situation, but it is absolutely a possibility that this legislation dies on its own weight. You heard it from Maya McGinnis. I'm not sure the leadership knows what it's going to do. Maya, thank you, president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget and a great conversation. Sound On is brought to you by Barish and McGarry, lawyers for the 9-11 community. For 20 years, they've been fighting for those who continue to get sick from the 9-11 toxins, free health care and compensation available. Visit 911victims.com. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The debt ceiling deadline, only a couple of weeks off, according to the Treasury Secretary. And of course, the government funding bill Democrats want to attach it to has to be passed in the next 10 days. And with that, we assemble the panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis, both of whom saw some version of this coming. And Jeannie, I'll start with you. Is this clever politics by the speaker and majority leader? Call it a suspension of the debt ceiling to cover Republican debt. Stuff it in the CR, even though you know it won't pass. What's this all about? I think it's about making the case that to underscore, and I think we're seeing, and you just discussed this posturing on both sides, but I think what they're trying to do is underscore the fact that Republicans were quite willing to borrow money and to raise the debt ceiling when Donald Trump was in office. And now that President Obama, President Biden, I'm sorry, is in office, that they are unwilling to pay for what they borrowed at that point. But as you heard from Bill Cassidy and others over the weekend, Republicans are unflinching about about this. I mean, he was very clear on Sunday. He said, if the Democrats want us on board with raising this debt ceiling, they should talk to us and compromise with us about how much they're going to borrow and pay for this infrastructure bill. And of course, Democrats are unwilling to do that. So you've got posturing on both sides. I think the real story here is the fact we are the only nation in the world that plays this game with the debt ceiling. It has run its course. We should not have it anymore. We should either get rid of it or, as you were just talking about, it should be tied to the borrowing at the time it occurs. To set it on down the road makes little sense from a public policy perspective or an economic perspective. You were part of this ping pong game a bunch of times, uh, Rick Davis. This is an interesting wrinkle, though. Is it good politics? You know, I, I think it's politics, right? It's it, Whether it's good or not is <laughs> not uh, yet to be seen. But it's just political, right? We now yeah. know that what the Republicans in the Senate are really trying to do is get some leverage that they didn't have because the Democrats decided to do reconciliation to fund $3.5 trillion of spending. And now they found a, a, some leverage and they're like, fine, you know what? You want to you do this, do it yourself. And if you can't do it yourself, which I don't think they can, then the question is, what are you going to do for us? And this now is a way that Mitch McConnell, minority leader in the Senate, has found to leverage his way into what otherwise was a purely Democratic initiative, mm -hmm. uh, this budget reconciliation bill. And I think he's got wind at his back because even the Democrats have been working to pare it down you know, from its original $3.5 trillion spending limit to something down around a trillion, tr tr trillion and a half. And so he's, he's now entered the field of play uh, for budget reconciliation, and the card he has to play <laughs> is called the debt ceiling. Amazing. Uh, as I read on the terminal this morning, Emily Wilkins with the story that the ads have started running as lawmakers have now come back to town, listen to what they're hearing when they go online in the D.C. area. 
Hey politicians, we get it. These days, it seems like some of you only know the word no. But when you obstruct the Build Back Better agenda, we hear you say yes. Just yes. one of many ads uh, coming out of this uh, block of commercials uh, that are now playing in an, in an effort to convince lawmakers, not voters, but lawmakers as they're back here in the Capitol area and taking part in this debate. I don't know if this moves the needle uh, for anyone here, Jeannie, but all of this is being decided at once. And it seems like something is going to have to give. We get the continuing resolution, then the debt ceiling has to go to reconciliation. Reconciliation isn't a high enough number, then that impacts bipartisan infrastructure. I can't imagine a time when Nancy Pelosi had this many plates spinning in the air. That's right. And of course, the White House has got to be very, very concerned at this point. You have Kristen Cinema, you have Joe Manchin showing, showing no signs of cooperating. And you know, a lot of people like to talk about this as a bipartisan issue that President Obama promised to, you know, reach across the aisle and bring bipartisanship back to Washington. This is not about bipartisanship anymore. This is about holding the Democratic caucus together. That is the White House's number one concern here. Democrats have have the votes to raise the debt ceiling. They can move forward with this. That will go ahead. The real question here is, does Joe Biden get this infrastructure bill passed at a level that progressives and moderates can be comfortable with and he can claim a victory? Because we are dangerously close to focusing on the midterm election. He's dangerously close to being in December. And we heard Joe Manchin just the other day saying he wants to put this off, this pause he talked about publicly. He was saying he wants to put this off till next year. The Biden administration cannot afford that. And the modern presidency, it's year one. You got to get your big bills done. If not, it's much harder to get done. That's right. And I'm glad to say that if you're a regular listener to this program, you saw this coming as well. The headline in The New York Times, Democrats dealt a blow on immigration plans. As you well know, Rick Davis, it all comes down to the Senate parliamentarian. And the parliamentarian, Elizabeth McDonough, said no to including at least this version of immigration reform, which was a big part of the human infrastructure bill. Jen Psaki was asked about it today in the White House briefing. We don't have to go through her comments because the, she's, the White House is hoping there's an alternative plan. Can they come up with one? Uh, I don't think so. Not on immigration. Uh, they so needed that ship that, has sailed. I think that ship has sailed. I mean, Elizabeth McDonough's gavel has hit the rock, and and it's wow. it's basically look. You know, uh, she's declared what everybody knew, which was this has nothing to do with a budget matter. Uh, they tried to sneak it in with uh, uh, a plausible but but not effective argument, and and so now immigration moves back to where it really needs to be, which is a standalone statute. Because one of the problems you have with trying to do a a bill like immigration and, 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 and a pathway to legal citizenship for 8 to 11 million people is that it could be undone with 51 votes just right. as easily as it got done. And that's why lawmakers make laws, because it's harder to change a law. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano with us for the hour. Our Bloomberg Sound On panel will tackle the president's trip to the U.N. next. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. 
Certainly no shortage of challenges to face on the global stage right now as President Biden arrives at the U.N. General Assembly, or UNGA, as some like to call it, which sounds appropriately similar to UG. Sort of reads the same, too. Just think China, Afghanistan, France, COVID, UG. As we're joined now by Brett Bruin, the president of the Global Situation Room, former director of global engagement at the White House, the Obama administration. Brett, welcome back. I'm glad you're here. We heard from the press secretary today about the speech that Joe Biden will deliver tomorrow morning. Here's what Jen Psaki said. The president's going to lay out the case for why the next decade will determine our future, not just for the United States, but for the global community. And he will talk, and this will be a central part of his remarks, about the importance of reestablishing our alliances after the last several years. I also think it's important to note that reestablishing alliances doesn't mean that you won't have disagreements uh, or you won't have disagreements about how to approach any particular issue in the world. That is not the bar for having an alliance. The next decade, Brett Bruin. How about the next month? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, you can't reestablish global alliances, global trust on the cheap. You've got to show up, and Biden has got to show up here in New York tomorrow with a big plan and big substance. Because world leaders have heard all about his slogans, all about the superficial commitments. It's time to show up uh, with some real commitments. So you're advising the president, maybe you're writing his speech, considering the list I rattled off there, a potential Cold War with China. You've got the withdrawal now complete from Afghanistan, still Americans left in country. You've got a botched uh, attack against what we were told was a group of terrorists, civilians killed. You've got France now withdrawing the ambassador and a global pandemic. How do you prioritize uh, all of these matters and how do you express confidence in dealing with them in front of that crowd, Brett? Well, I think all of those issues and more have one thread in common. It is uh, a lack of credibility, a lack of confidence in American leadership. Afghanistan certainly shook it. Uh, The latest developments with France have further exacerbated it. So Biden has to reframe this issue. He has got to tell the world, why they should trust him again. And I think he lost a lot of goodwill. He lost a lot of uh, the trust that was given to him at the outset of this year when he took over from Donald Trump. And and quite frankly, we aren't far from Trumpian levels of uh, mistrust in, in America's global leadership. Well, that's saying something. That with the message from this administration throughout its first year, Uh, that America is back and that we are reestablishing, as Jen Psaki said repeatedly, reestablishing our oldest and most important alliances. How much are you referring there to the submarine deal that upset the French versus our withdrawal from Afghanistan? Well, that has just been a a, a massive um, mismanaged issue. Yes, of course, um, you're going to have these military arms deals that have to be kept in secret. And obviously, you've got to navigate the interests of the French, the Australians, the Brits and others. But how in the world did we end up in a situation where France and China somehow are are reading off of the same sheet of music? It, It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for our global objectives. 
I have to say it's also part of a problem, a process problem that I've been talking about for months now, which is that our national security team is just not uh, recognizing, not uh, preparing for a lot of these potential consequences and collateral damage from decisions they're making. You know how these things work, Brett. It's, it's Everyone sees this speech, the green marble the pomp and circumstance of the U.N. General Assembly, even though it'll be smaller because of COVID this time around. But it's the bilaterals where the work is done, right? The meetings with foreign leaders, the president will be holding some of these. Uh, will anyone be there who who matters to the stories that you and I are talking about right now? Well, I have to say, usually an American president stays for a few days, does some of those bilaterals, even trilaterals with key countries and leaders. Biden is in New York for less than 24 hours. Yes, he will receive uh, some countries back in Washington, but this is definitely an abridged engagement, and it is furthering the view of many world leaders that the U.S., that Biden himself is not spending enough time on the international agenda, on some of these international crises. He continues to put foreign policy on the back burner. And I think he's going to get an earful in those meetings he is having about that lack of real robust engagement. We uh, talked a little bit earlier about uh, the inaugural speech here, the first speech before UNGA coming from Brazil, which is a long tradition. Great story on the terminal about why, if you want to know, by the way. But we've got an unvaccinated uh, Brazilian leader who's going to be speaking. And, and the, we're already reporting at Bloomberg that a, a member of Bolsonaro's delegation is now in isolation after testing positive for COVID in New York. Uh, how, how important is this and how, how is COVID going to play against this meeting? Is there a chance this gets cut short? Oh, well, there certainly are a lot of risks with all of these delegations, because remember, heads of state do not travel with a light footprint. It's not just the American what? president, but all of these leaders bring along large security and other personal entourages with them. So there is certainly a risk for a super spreader event at the Super Bowl of diplomacy. But at the same time, I think it's really important that world leaders get back together and that they have a chance to meet face-to-face that we show. And I was having dinner last week with an ambassador to the U.N. from another allied country, and he said, you know, this is, uh, quite frankly, so important so that we can get back to diplomacy as usual, because diplomacy is not something you can do over Zoom. Now he tells us about the dinner, now that we're out of time. I want to know who you had dinner with now, of course, Brett. Thank you, though, and come back and see us soon. Brett Bruin of the Global Situation Room. This is Bloomberg Sound On, the fastest hour in politics, and we reassemble the panel next. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis with an eye on the U.N. and what we might hear tomorrow, what we need to hear tomorrow from the President of the United States. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. You know, Bloomberg Sound On is heard around the country. And if you're not in New York this afternoon, you might have missed the update in our traffic report that the helicopter has landed. That would be Marine One. That would be President Biden. Landed a short time ago near Wall Street. The motorcade is now rolling. So Unga is on. And so is the panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis with us here for the full hour. Rick, I'll start with you this time and the stakes surrounding uh, this address and this gathering, albeit a bit smaller than usual. 
in New York with so many challenges we just discussed with Brett. And I'll start with China here as I find the headline on the terminal. Biden to tell U.N. China U.S. must cooperate on climate in COVID. This came up today in the White House briefing as we apparently try to move beyond our differences. What should Joe Biden be seeking since well, President Xi won't even be there, right? President Xi won't be there. Um, uh, Biden has uh, been looking for uh, a reason to meet with him. Uh, evidently, it's not as enthusiastically received on the China side. Hmm. So so he's got to try to position the U.S. as it relates to the rest of the world uh, on the China issue. Uh, we're in competition with China. Uh, the President Biden has made that perfectly clear. Uh, and so there are a lot of countries on the bubble. Uh, people who are taking technology and loans from China for their own development. Uh, China's using uh, vaccine diplomacy very effectively to try and split the country into those who will do business with China versus those who will do business with the United States. Uh, mm. That pressure is only getting higher. And, and this United Nations General Assembly is going to see various outbreaks on that. You mentioned it. Uh, climate is a big issue uh, that is uh, right now dividing the two countries in the world. Uh, and I think that the COVID uh, story has not been written yet. I, there's no question that Joe Biden's interest in getting an extra 500 million shots is offset the impact that China has been having uh, around the world. The secretary general of the U.N., Antonio Guterres, did an interview over the weekend with the AP and got a lot of people in Washington talking about it because he called Jeannie on US, the U.S. and China to repair their relationship that he referred to. He described as completely dysfunctional and he warned of a new Cold War. Uh, Rick just used the word uh, competitor, I think, to describe our relationship. And Jen Psaki uh, did as well today. She said our relationship, when asked about this with China, is one of competition, not conflict. And Jen Psaki went on to say this. And he will make absolutely clear that he is not looking to uh, pursue a future, a new Cold War with any country in the world. Uh, we will continue to pursue our interests. We will continue to lift up global priorities. But that is not the objective or the policy of the United States. I'll let Rick answer this as well. But Jeannie, how about you first? If, we're, if this is not a Cold War, then what is it? That's right. And, and, you know, the U.N. secretary's remarks over the weekend were stunning. He called it completely dysfunctional, as you said. He said today we have only confrontation. And he's absolutely right that we need to reestablish a relationship between these two powers. But I'm not sure we anybody should be holding their breath. Just look at the meetings that Biden is going to be holding this week, these one-on-one -on -one meetings. Australian prime minister, Indian prime minister, and Japanese prime minister. That tells almost the entire story. That while they are publicly saying they don't want a Cold War, they are gearing up to form alliances that, if they can, try to address and strangle China as best as possible. And that's what he's been up to. And he's willing to risk, of all things, relationships with places like France, allies like mm -hmm. France, in the process. So I think that it is a long way to go. But the reality is we do need to cooperate on climate and COVID with China at the very least, not to mention trade and so many other things. But we've seen really no real, I don't think, show by either side that they're willing to do that. Maybe a better way to ask the question, Rick, is if this is not a Cold War, what would that look like? Uh, a Cold War with China? Uh, I think that uh, you start to see the, the world divided. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, it kind of harkens back to the Cold War with Russia, right? Yeah. We had those 
countries that are aligned with Russia, and we had those aligned with us. And then it, the people in the middle were called the non-aligns. <laughs> and, and, and I think that is where the, the, the world is headed, just by sheer gravity. Uh, China on its own has enormous gravity, their economic power, their military power that's growing significantly. And, and the U.S. has the aging power system, right? Our, our military, our, our financial system has been around a lot longer. Uh, maybe deeper relationships exist there, uh, but they've been under assault. Uh, I think your last guest, uh, Brett Brune, did a very good job of talking about the fact that part of Biden's job just to get into the game is to reinstill that trust mm -hmm. that our allies and our partners have around the world in the United States. Well, and to your point, Jeannie, uh, France doesn't have a lot of trust right now. They recalled their ambassador, for crying out loud, the end of last week. I mean, this started for most people who are not initiated in uh, the world of geopolitics. It, it looked like a headline, you know, of oh, the submarine deal. OK, let's move on. France is furious about this. And I wonder what you think about our long term relationship. Well, you know, I, I think it will correct itself. France is, you know, rightly concerned about the impact on its economy, the impact on jobs at home. It is frustrated that it was left out of this, you know, new sort of alliance and deal. And to save face, I think they had to recall their ambassador. But when I saw that headline, I thought it sounded like something, you know, that you would have heard hundreds of years ago. So, yeah. you know, it, it's 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 a strange time. But if the goal of the Biden administration from the beginning has been to restore trust with our allies, to reestablish our alliances, to tell the world that the Trumpians sort of, you know, thumbing their nose at these sort of global alliances, NATO and the UN and others, was behind us. They have a good deal of work to do. It's not just the issue of France. It's the issue of what happened with our withdrawal from Afghanistan. It's the issue of the confrontation with China. It's the issue of how we are handling COVID. And I think a real question as we look at the UN meetings, you know, a little small than usual is do we see the Biden administration not just talk but deliver because that's going to be what the world is looking for can we deliver on something and the two biggies are probably at this point or the two big possibilities are climate initiatives and COVID and so those I think are what we need to watch for to see if we can sort of re-establish re that relationship or those relationships. Well, there's certainly a lot to, to hash out there, uh, Rick Davis, and we can add Afghanistan to it. This uh, this errant bombing of civilians, the killing of 10 civilians, we were told was a, a, a retribution, an attack on terrorists who bombed our Marines in Kabul and killed a lot of other people. Turns out they were carrying water. This was uh, this was someone who was actually going to help. Uh, not good for credibility when you're standing in front of the General Assembly talking about over-the-horizon strategies. That's right. Uh, this is a, a real shot to American prestige and credibility, um, especially because initially, uh, normally you wouldn't, you wouldn't even talk about these kinds of attacks, but the military went out and sort of did a, uh, a victory dance around yeah. the fact that they got these terrorists who were going to disrupt the evacuation, um, and then they had to eat crow. Uh, it's, it's, it's not good. Uh, these things happen. The fog of war is a real thing. Uh, this was a very difficult uh, situation that the military presented themselves in, in Afghanistan. And, it, and frankly, uh, uh, it, it will stain the honor of our military for some time to come. Uh, but the bottom line is we're, we're trying to do the right thing. Uh, uh, Afghanistan will be talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, the U.N. General Assembly has a big problem. Who are they going to recognize as the 
proper uh, leadership of Afghanistan? Do they seat a Talibani or do they seat someone from the previous administration? Uh, it's it's not easy, but it does bring to focus the fact that these kinds of changes have long-term impacts, both with the security, economic freedoms that we all have, and, and it's going to come into sharp contrast this week, especially uh, with the pressure that China is giving us in that region. It, it, it just keeps getting back to China-U.S. relations and how everything seems to come into the same vector of, of, of importance. I'll tell you, now that we know that the motorcade is rolling, the President Biden is there, I know personally how difficult it is uh, around the White House complex to deal with COVID protocols. They don't let anyone near Joe Biden who could be a risk to his health. And we understand, of course, that uh, that that Brazil's Bolsonaro, who will be speaking first here, Jeannie, uh, is an anti-vaxxer or certainly not vaccinated. And a member, at least one member of his delegation has already tested positive for covid. If if you're managing the president's travel and his meetings over the next couple of days, is this riskier than normal or am I making too much out of this? I do think it's a risk. And I think the White House has suggested that. And they have talked about the fact, and Brett just mentioned this, that, that the president's schedule is going to be a little bit more truncated, yeah. understandably so, given the pandemic than usual. The White House has said he is going to be spending a lot more time at home, if you will, the White House and in Delaware, working from there. And I think it is a real concern about his health and the fact that as you are out, as we are all out and about, vaccinated or not, there mm-hmm. are breakthrough cases of COVID. And certainly at meetings like this, the president has got to be very, very careful. So I I do think that this sort of the pandemic, like it looms over all of our lives, is looming over this this meeting this week in New York City. Could this uh, General Assembly, could UNGA be a super spreader, Rick? Uh, yeah, I thought it was a, a hilarious term, a super spreader event at the Super Bowl of diplomacy. <laughs> pretty good for Brett, I got to say. Great, great line. Uh, yeah, sure. You got to watch out for that. And uh, I'm sure everybody will take the protocols very seriously. In your free time, read Jeannie's column, Making Madisonian Government Work is a Sisyphean Task. And we're going to the, push the rock up the hill again tomorrow on the fastest hour in politics. Find Jeannie in the fulcrum. Jeannie and Rick, our panel. Many thanks, as always. I'll meet you back here this time tomorrow. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.